Welcome back to the Block Fuel Podcast. I'm here with Jody, my co-host, and Kelsey Driscoll. So Kelsey, we had almost met, I think, at Permissionless. I know we were back and forth on Telegrams trying to connect. Those conferences get a little crazy. So I'm happy we finally were able to connect a few weeks back, learned all about Upbring, excited to talk about here today and introduce to the world because I, I certainly had not heard about it and I thought it was just fascinating what you guys are doing. So Kelsey, welcome to the Block Fuel Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Avi. And yeah, we were ships in the night at Permissionless, but as is the case at these conferences that just get a little bit crazy. But yeah, thank you for having me on. Thank you for wanting to elevate Upbring's message and efforts. Um, We just really appreciate it. Of course. And so before we dive into like Upbring, I know you have like a million different companies and and things (laughs) that you're involved with. So we'll focus, of course, on Upbring. But just give the audience, for those that don't know you, just a little bit of a background and some of the different projects you've been involved with. And I know you were working in the government prior to this, and now you're somewhat in there, but in the blockchain. So I'd love just to have you uh, give a quick overview of yourself and, and what projects you're involved with. Totally. And I'll give you a bit of context about my background, too. So I started my career in D.C., and I was there for about 10 years. Um, I'm living in Austin, Texas now, where Upbring is headquartered. Um, but for about 10 years, I was in and out of the policy scene and government contracting through management consulting. So I did a lot of digital transformation as well as social impact consulting, which um, is kind of a fuzzy term sometimes. I consider social impact strategy and consulting basically defining what change you want to make in the world and then figuring out how to do that in the most effective way possible. So I helped government agencies do that. I helped foundations and 501c3s do that. Um, And I've also worked on and off the hill doing lobbying efforts around that. Um, And so kind of started in management consulting, grew into freelance consulting and strategy, got a master's degree in public policy uh, with a focus on nonprofit management, and then moved to Austin and started working with Upbring. Um, and Upbring is a the largest child placing agency in Texas. Uh, we've been around for over 140 years, and we do um, kind of everything end to end in child well being. So we have over 30 Head Start programs. We have uh, which is education focused. We have a Trinity Charter School. We have. 14 foster in Texas offices. We have a residential treatment center. We also treat children and care for children who come over the border unaccompanied. So we just have a really like wide variety of services. What I do is run the innovation lab and our focus is looking upstream. So not looking at direct service because we're really very good at that. And all those programs that I just named, that's direct service programs. But What the Innovation Lab does is look upstream using private sector methodologies, think lean, agile, human-centered design, all those buzzwords that came from Silicon Valley in the early 2000s. But we use those and apply them to the persistent issues in the child well-being sector. Um, So basically, how do we figure out new solutions using emerging technologies such as blockchain um, to break the cycle of child abuse, which is our mission? So I came in having kind of cross-sector expertise in social impact, but now get to apply it specifically to this population, which is um, just really rewarding. And I'm very privileged to be able to do that. Um, and the way that I got into Web3 was actually through Upbring, which is not very normal in the space. I think a lot of people come in from the fintech space or from you know the software development space. 
um, when NFTs exploded in 2020, 2021, mm-hmm. my job from Upbring's perspective was to figure out if there was a there there for nonprofits to play. And so that's kind of how I jumped in. And um, so to speak, I fell down the rabbit hole, like we all like to say. Right. And I came in a huge skeptic. I was like, you know, as being in social impact for a long time and kind of working across sectors, I was like, oh, this is another way to hide money. This is, you know, this is just another way to, you know, avoid taxes, basically. Um, but I educated myself out of that perspective and really started to understand the innate value in blockchain, blockchain technology, um, even outside the use case of cryptocurrency. Um, and so in 2021, 2022, we actually launched a full-blown Web3 strategy for Upbring. Um, and within that time, I also served as the chief of staff for ChangeDAO, um, which was an NFT marketplace for social change art. Um, we have since paused our operations to focus on L2, but learned a lot in that process, released a couple of really successful NFT projects that were benefiting uh, nonprofit organizations, learned the space, um, got to meet a bunch of amazing people. Um, and now Upbring is part of the Tech Blockchain Coalition. Um, we've done we've done events and projects with uh, Change Gallery, with Texas Blockchain Council, with ATX DAO. Um, so we've really, you know, my goal was always to make us really part of the Web3 community. And I think mm-hmm. over the past few years, we've successfully done that. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I have my hands in a few different things in the community. Um, all kind of social impact focus. I, I also run a nonprofit here in Austin called Female Founder House that's dedicated to getting more than 2% of VC funding to female founders. So that has Web3 elements to it as well, as there are a bunch of startups in the space that are female founded. Um, but yeah, so that, that's a bit of, I know that was long-winded, but it's a bit of a step oh, to, um, of my background and then what I play in right now. I was going to say, that's it's exciting. You have your fingers in so many things and, you know, making it happen. And it also cool to sound like these are things that aren't just cool ideas, but you're actually getting people to commit for, I think what would be really interesting for us is for a 140-year-old organization, what was the process, even if just at the beginning of being like, hey, we're going to commit to a full-on Web3 strategy. And so now you're involved in ATX DAO and Texas Blockchain Association. But for a lot of our like audience that's more in the Web2 space that is trying to convince people that like, hey, even if it doesn't immediately have revenue, we need to commit to some type of strategy and try a few things out. What was that process like? What were some of the pushback items that you got? Can you kind of just like tell us how that went? Yeah. So Upbring is unique because of how we've designed the innovation lab within the nonprofit. Our goal is to be kind of the safe sandbox to play. And then if things work, you roll them out to programs. But the name of the game with any nonprofit is risk management. Mm-hmm. And it's because nonprofits are built, they have higher reporting requirements. They're under a lot more scrutiny because they're tax exempt. And so in the beginning with blockchain, it was very much about risk management and education. So it was laying out really clearly what the value proposition was and why this technology innately added value to the ecosystem that other technologies cannot. They do not have the ability to. And so the first, I mean, I didn't even open a wallet for myself until I was in the space for about six months. 
because I didn't feel safe. And that was back when people were like, oh, you got to cut your teeth and lose a few grand. And like, that's a really privileged point of view. And it's it's not, um, you know, it doesn't take into consideration the risks that larger organizations have to take on, especially legacy organizations that have a reputation and a big donor base and a community presence. Um, that is sacrosanct, that trust with our community. And so, uh, again, we, we designed the innovation lab to be able to research, incubate, and then roll out solutions when they are de-risked. So we started with lowest hanging fruit, um, you know, height of the bull, there was money flying around. We had people approach us like, can we donate crypto? And we were like, um, let's figure that out. <laughs> Um, first was accepting crypto donations, um, which is a pretty much an easy sell because we ended up uh, partnering with the Giving Block. So they kind of do the custody for nonprofits. Um, and we also have a relationship with Endowment, which does something similar, except for they you know, deal more with DAFs, which are donor advised funds. Um, but that's how we got leadership kind of comfortable, I think, with the idea of, you know, Bitcoin doesn't equal crime. equal embezzlement right like there are really clear ways to safely engage with this technology and so uh we really leaned on partners and kind of tested that use case our first uh project was a big campaign with 12 different nonprofits in texas and the value proposition was give once it goes to 12 different vetted nonprofits let's see if the um, ecosystem will respond to this. And they did. We ended up raising around like 30 grand or something like that, but it was enough to kind of demonstrate to leadership that there was a bear there. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we came in and started to lay out other ways to play is kind of how I present it. So blockchain technology is just one of the technologies in Upbring Innovation Labs portfolio that we've explored. We've also explored big data, machine learning, and what we always do first is dive really deep in the technology, figure out if there's applicability, and then start to strategically communicate that alignment to the stakeholders who would be the beneficiaries within the organization. And then you go from there. We had that first kind of successful use case. And then we said, okay, but there are neat things, there are neat qualities and traits that blockchain has that can be applied in different ways. And so, we started to explore what did data management look like decentralized. Um, and then we started to build an application for child welfare data management because we realized that blockchain and the decentralized technology had a unique value proposition in comparison to either a middleware or a centralized database. And so it took us about six months to a year to both fundraise and kind of get buy-in across the organization. And then we rolled out the prototype. But we did that with five other different partners. While Web3 feels like it travels at the speed of light and, you know, six, three to six months feels like a couple years, there is reconciliation you have to do from a nonprofit standpoint of just knowing that it's going to take longer and investing in those solutions that aren't, um, you know, half and strike when the iron's hot. But rather, how do we build this up to make meaningful impact and change over time, knowing that adoption of new technologies has to take into consideration these values of risk management and education within the organization? No, I think that's that's very powerful. I think what you said earlier, too, is like, 
isn't Bitcoin used for drugs and illicit things? And it's just so funny to me when I look back, it's like, isn't cash also used for that, which is not trackable, right? It's like, it's such an obvious thing to people that are in the space. And the one bridge that we're trying to create here is helping people to understand more about blockchain technology, right? Because ultimately, people don't know, and this can go for any subject matter, but if people don't know about something, it's very easy for them to push it away, call it a fraud, take the headlines they see on CNBC of like Sam Bankman Freed right now. But the reality is there's a lot of really smart people in the space and the technology itself, you look at all these institutions coming in, it's clear as day that this is the, the new wave. I always go back to the example of like pets.com. People thought the internet was fake and the internet was bullshit, you know? So it's, it's funny to see the Amazons that come out of that, right? And, and blockchain to us, it's obviously often associated with that transparency and, and security in the way that we're thinking about this. So I'd love to hear if you have any specific examples of how you're leveraging. I know you mentioned from the data perspective, but any more like real world use cases to help break maybe the generational cycle of like child abuse and helping people find homes and get educated and things like that. Totally. And I, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into the data management part of uh, that project, because I think that um, at scale, it can be really impactful if we think about, again, like not only can Upbring adopt this solution, but can the entire sector adopt this solution and what type of change that can make. So I'll zoom out a little bit. And what we built, um, we're calling it CareBlock right now. Um, and it's a prototype for a blockchain application um, for child welfare data management, specifically for the foster care system. And um, it requires a little bit of context. So in the foster care system in Texas, and it varies state by state. So right now I'm talking about Texas specifically. It's pretty decentralized already in how it works. It's kind of hybrid private public. And what that means is that the state does some of the activities that have to do with foster care. So um, investigations, removals from homes, the state does that. But private nonprofits like Upbring verify foster parents, match them, uh, place children, do the casework around those children who are placed as they move through the system. And when I first started at Upbring, uh, and that was in 2020, so pre-getting into blockchain or anything like that, we did a comprehensive data landscape analysis end-to-end. -end. So basically from investigation, removal from home, all the way until permanency, which we define as either reunification with your bio parents or adoption. What does that data journey look like? And that was our first step. And we realized it was super convoluted. There's like seven different systems. None of them talk to each other. There's, yeah. you, you know, the, the rate of human error and risk of human error is really high because there's re-entering the same information in different systems and emailing PDFs back and forth of, of outdated or incomplete data on children. Um, and what does that mean? So what that means in impact is that the child gets re-traumatized because they have to, uh, and there's all of those different stakeholders that they touch, they have to retell their story. Because the documentation about their story isn't following them. So not only is the child having to be removed because something like abuse or neglect or maltreatment has happened, but then they have to say that over and over and over again, which can be really detrimental mental health wise. And then after that, um, if that data doesn't follow them in a timely manner, they could not get the right dosage of medication because someone doesn't have the information they need at that time. They could get mismatched in placements. So they would have to have multiple placements or number of placements 
is directly correlated via data analysis that we did to life outcomes. Mm -hmm. So like the more placements you have, the less likely you're going to achieve permanency. If you don't achieve permanency, that can affect things like literally your life expectancy over time. And so to us, we were like, that's silly. We can fix data. We, we have systems that can do that. And a big thing with the innovation lab is, and innovation in general, you got to fall in love with the problem, not the solution. And so we fell in love with this problem of like, how do we make this more efficient? And we went into, okay, well, what's the probability of being able to in- introduce a centralized database or a middleware solution or any of these other types of technologies? And it just so happened that blockchain fit best. So we went down that road and we were like, okay, decentralized solution. All of these different actors could have their own server that has a verifiable ledger on there. So all the data is accessible at the same time to the actors that need it to take care of this child, to provide the direct service they need in the time they need it. Mm -hmm. And so if you think, you know, in short, if you think of a child going through the foster care system as a product going through a supply chain, you want to know at every single point in that supply chain what's happening to that product. Think of like how we uh, track organic goods or something like that, right? We, we want it verifiable end to end. We need to be doing the same thing with the child's data as they move through the system so that we make sure that we're supporting them in the best way possible. So that was the impetus behind building the prototype. We worked with two other child placing agencies in Texas. We worked with a technical partner. We worked with a technical advisory firm. And then we worked with a funding partner to bring this to life. And it was very much a prototype. Can we build these six nodes? Can they talk to each other? And we proved that they could. So now we're fundraising for round two so that we can incorporate document management and API to existing systems to see if that'll work to really roll out a decentralized solution that can also be scaled not only within Texas, but you can see this being applicable nationally for international adoption, you know, anything having to do with um, electronic health records following a child to improve their care. um, There's a match there. So that was the impetus behind it. We hope um, that it grows. Um, We really, as I said, we're fundraising right now for round two. um, And we feel like there's a lot of impact that can be had at scale. Um, and not only during the time that a child is in care, but as I said, over their lifetime, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in seeing how different data management um, interventions like this, you know, what is the longitudinal analysis on that? Um, and, and that's what we're testing out. And we see it work in supply chains. So why can't it work with human data as well? Which is, which is, I was thinking healthcare the whole time as you were going through that. Right, right. And it's just wild to me that we do this for like a candy bar, for example, like going through the process of, of all that with supply chain. And we can't do that with humans or with health records, you know, in that same light. So do you guys bump into the similar problem? Like, I don't know if there's like a HIPAA compliance equivalent to what you guys are doing. Did you guys have to then talk with the regulators to make them understand like what the importance of this was? Was there... So prototype, MVPs, all of this, we only use dummy data. You really have to prove out the concept and prototype first before you mess with any personal identifiable information within the program. So we haven't crossed the bridge yet in having to deal with HIPAA regulations. With that said, there are already blockchain solutions that are implemented through government contracts that have to comply with different types of 
security measures. For example, DOD already has a bunch of contracts that have really high level personal identifiable information about people, but they're using blockchain to secure it. So there's a way to do it. The government is already doing it in other sectors. We're trying to kind of bridge that gap and make that happen here. There it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, curious on like, you know, we talked to Oleg Flamenco from Sweat Economy um, you know, on, on whatever recent podcasts. And part of what he had to do like during like building his platform was he moved it from their own in-house, uh, you know, chain and onto like the near protocol. And so talked a little bit around like how he chose that, you know, ecosystem. Um, in your kind of evaluation, you said you worked for the advisors and, you know, tech partners, you know, to figure out, okay, you know, what are we going to do with exactly what blockchain technology, what are we going to implement? What are the nodes going to look like? Like, what was your experience there? Like, I know there's a kind of a, a push back and forth on like, hey, do we need a new ecosystem or can we use this L2 on Ethereum or we need a new L1, you know, that's a completely different system. Like, how do you evaluate kind of like what's currently out there? Could it be repurposed or, you know, is something totally new needed to be created? Yeah, to be honest, I don't think in anything new needs to be created. Um, there's so many blockchains out there already. Some of the blockchains that you mentioned are cryptocurrency protocols. That is not what we're playing in when we talk about personal identifiable information or government records. We're really talking about a private blockchain because you need it to be permissioned, um, but it's decentralized and how it's maintained. As we scale, we'll figure out which blockchain we really want to go forward with. There are a few that we're, um, that we're talking to right now that have already done government contracts like this, that have done this, maybe not in this sector, but either with DOD or, you know, health and human services or something like that. So, um, no, I don't think that something completely new needs to be built, but we are exploring partnerships across the board of which protocol is applicable in this sense and kind of does everything that we want it to do. Because yes, it has this underlying, um, you know, immutable ledger, which is like the baseline of <laughs> But we also need it to talk to other systems, to interact with middleware and and to be able to be maintained over time. Um, which really building blockchain solutions isn't the hard part. It's the maintaining the protocol over time to ensure that there's longevity. And that's been um, a challenge, I'm sure, as you've seen through the bear market, as these companies go out of business, right? Because some of them are in Series A, some of them are in Series D, and the bottom falls out when things like SBF happen or, you know, the Silicon Valley banks have happened. <laughs> those, those are real risks. So it's why we kind of incubate, again, within the Innovation Lab before rolling it out at scale. And we do it piecemeal and kind of slow and intentional to ensure that the partners that we're working with have that longevity. Because something that we adopt, it's not like you can just be like, oh, OK, we built it on this blockchain and this blockchain, you know, went out of business or closed down or whatever. And so we're just going to like throw it over here. Like there's not that adaptability yet. <laughs> there's not that cross chain type of um at least at scale, there's not that type of cross-chain um, uh, capability yet. So we have been really intentional. Um, and it's really through building trusted relationships within the ecosystem and um, making sure that our partners both understand the vision and also understand this sector. Because while even like obviously the nonprofit sector is slower, we've talked about risk mitigation, 
But even within that, um, child welfare moves even slower because we have to be intentional because there is no move fast and break things. Um, So because when you say move fast and break things, you're putting child lives at risk. And so um, I think that a long way around that question (laughs) is we're researching each one and building trust and we'll select our partners for this next phase very intentionally uh, based on the goals of the project and scalability over time. This conversation is so refreshing, uh, you know, to see something so meaningful, like coming out of this, right? It's, I always probably say this every single podcast, but it's not just pictures of cat that someone's going to rug pull you with, right? This is like real life that you're genuinely changing people's lives. Now, have you, have you seen with the, the, over the past couple of years, there's been this whole migration that's all over the news, people coming up through Texas, through California. Um, are, are, and I don't know if you can talk to some of the other, you mentioned the, like the DOD, but are there other services in the government besides upbringing that are kind of leveraging blockchain to help track? Because I've noticed that being like something I keep hearing about in the news where it's like, you'll talk to one department, then the person moves to another department and they're dropped off without any guidance of, of what to do or where to go. So yeah, I'd be curious to see if like other departments are, are leveraging this type of technology you mentioned them as people could be thought of as a product. And I know you were just trying to make an analogy there. These are human lives at the end of the day, but there has to be some sort of ability to track and make sure that, that we know who, who's in. So curious if, if you have any thoughts on that, or if you've seen any departments also leveraging blockchain to that capacity. Yeah, I have. Um, you know, what we call this enterprise solutions or enterprise blockchain. That's kind of the sector that we're talking about. And it's these massive solutions that can be integrated into government. And if it integrated into government services, then it touches almost every American. All of a sudden, you have all of these people using blockchain. They don't even know they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the new term that I've learned in the enterprise space is distributed ledger technology or DLT. And so if you want to search what else is happening in government contracts, that's the word to search. We have to rebrand things so that they're more palatable, I think. There have been contracts that have come out. Interesting, because navigating the grant space and the money that's coming from the government is very different than leveraging or navigating the foundation space or the startup world. Um, A lot of the government contracts that are coming out that are being responded to with blockchain solutions don't explicitly ask for blockchain solutions. They're asking for innovative solutions. They're talking, they're asking for digital transformation. They're asking for um, even like workforce development and organizations and companies are coming in and saying, okay, but the best solution to this is using blockchain. Again, that mindset of falling in love with a problem and it just so happens that blockchain is the best answer to that problem. So I would actually bring to the forefront um, an organization called Providence Chain, and it comes out of Oregon. And they are doing, they just announced that they won a big contract with, um, I believe, DOD. Um, and I believe it has to do with Space Force. Don't quote me on that. But a lot are coming out again with that supply chain. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen as much having to do with electronic health records, but that isn't surprising to me because there's so much more risk that has to do with human information rather than product information. But there, you know, it's it's interesting for DOD, whether it be weapons or whatever, but also in a cybersecurity concept, right? When we're thinking and and national security, 
we need to know where things come from and if they're tampered with before they get here. Think the chips we put in our computers and cars, right? There's a one-to-one verifiable immutable ledgers are needed or verifiable credentials are needed in that capacity. So I've seen that. I've also seen some other more local state municipal contracts come out or at least solutions come out. So think real estate deeds, property stuff like that. That's another use case that's coming up and and really getting a lot of attention. Um, And also educational credential. So having your university degree or any certifications that you get on chain, so you don't always have to be, for example, like, writing to your university for them to send back a paper copy of your diploma right. or whatever. Like there, there are a lot of startups in the space and government contracts coming out to streamline that process. Anything that has a lot of administrative overhead that kind of be automated with smart contracts, we're starting to see adopt quote unquote DLT or distributed ledger technology. That's did I answer your question? Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, you know, it was more centered specifically like around like these are like hard topics to probably talk about like migraines or like trafficking and things like that but that's probably very involved with your work and and into the bigger picture of what's happening so just kind of curious of that if there's ways that blockchain is kind of helping to stop some of the child trafficking and and uh some of the migrants that are coming over making sure like it's it's a real I, i think i had heard this on a different podcast maybe so there may be a technology that exists but it was like an example of like a mother comes over and they don't speak any English, but their child is sick right now and they need care. How do those health records somehow transact in a way that can save this child's life? And it's just really tough topics probably to talk about. But you know, I think it's important to talk about because these things are happening. Absolutely. And I think they're coming. I think those solutions are coming. And, I, and I've heard of a few people exploring that. We've had some think pieces come out um, especially with international development, I feel like blockchain and specifically cryptocurrency has opened a door. But even the solution that we're working on with just child welfare data following the child as they go through systems, you can see that being scaled internationally so that, for example, if you're adopting a child from another country, their bio information comes with them. Right now, that doesn't always happen. There's actually a large percentage of kids who come over that doesn't happen. And that means that it's harder for caretakers to know what they're predisposed to, what their genetic conditions could be, what, you know, even what their allergies may be, right? Like those, those types of things. And I mean, a- across the board, bio information, the digital Digitization uh, of bio information has been on the rise. I, I know that the UN has been working that on the for a really long time, particularly the UN um, Office on Refugees. Um, but there is a one-to-one use case there, right? Um, and I think too, when I talked about workforce development, that's also has to do with immigration, particularly in the United States and manufacturing that could be really useful. And there's starting to be government contracts that come out out around workforce development. Um, We talk about this all the time. We're going to need, if we're going to, if the GDP is going to grow at a rate that it's supposed to grow, we're going to need more labor. What does that mean? We need more immigration. Okay. Well, our immigration system isn't very streamlined. Is there an opportunity for blockchain technology to help streamline that? And I think the answer is yes. 
Um, but I still think that we're very early in the process of this mass adoption of distributed ledger technology. And so we're seeing these kind of like test cases mm-hmm. um, from organizations like Upbring that are figuring out in safe sandboxes, how could this work before they get scaled? Because we don't have to rebuild it. It's not software in the same way, right? right. It's more like, funny, I've been talking to my friends who are architects and they're like, it's more like building a house than it is building software that can just kind of be um, improved upon over and over. Like this this is, again, not move fast and break things, but being really intentional at every step. So I think we'll see it. We're starting to see the the beginnings of it. And I think that once you see government money in large amounts slowing into this space, it'll be more rapid. Yeah, I I think this, it really follows on some of the conversations we've had recently where our first block fuel podcast was was with Polymesh and uh, you know, Graham Moore started out talking around his children's book he wrote called Bees for Bitcoin. And he's very much a Bitcoin ma- maximalist when it comes to the currency side. But yeah. he said he also lives in the real world. And so knows that not everything can be built on the Bitcoin blockchain itself. And that any bank that's going to adopt any type of like distributed ledger technology is going to do it through a permission blockchain. And I think that's seeing that consistent thread of and- the wedge of having institutional adoption isn't going to come through banks just adding random tokens off some massive coin market cap list onto their balance sheet. It's probably going to come through permission blockchain. One of our customers we're working with right now, uh, Remark is actually building a Solana sidechain. So it's fully permissioned. It There's no actually cast to Solana mainnet, but because they're using Solana, they have a lot of d- developers that know it. So Kelsey, kind of to your point, it sounds like with the maintenance aspect that for a nonprofit that's worried about costs, then that's really what you need to look at is where are the developers, you know, who's going to continue to maintain this system? You know, how can we update this for the future? Um, and then for them, it's a way to, you know, work with big banks and saying like, hey, guys, don't be scared off by this. This is permission blockchain. It's very similar to JP Morgan's Onyx permission blockchain. You know, okay. like from that, do you see kind of where yourself having to go in to say the Texas Blockchain Association and then come up with new ways to say phrase things like you meant distribute ledger te- technology. A lot of people are using the digital asset ecosystem. Um, you know, what are some of the, the kind of like uh, euphemisms or, you know, repackaging that you've had to do to go in um, to bring people's guards down so that you can get them to buy into your project? Yeah, um, it depends on who I'm talking to, right? There are people who really get it. If you're like in the Web3 world, you can kind of use some of these terms um, interchangeably. So using blockchain, using distributed ledger technology, I can go in and out. I've been talking to someone who works with the government on a regular basis um, or has been in the enterprise world for a while. Um, but then if you go over to someone who's strictly just in fintech, DLT might be nonsense to them. So you might need to speak specifically about... Um, you know, immutable ledgers, because that's like the term that we use over and over again. Um, I tend to try to stay away from the word crypto unless we're specifically talking about fundraising. <laughs> um, and I try to use blockchain more specifically if we're talking about the underlying technology itself so that there's a clear distinction um, between infrastructure and use case. Because crypto is a use case or cryptocurrency as we see it is a use case of distributed ledger technology. 
And so it's more of who I'm talking to, but it changes all the time. I mean, I've had to learn, I learned a new phrase, I think like at least quarterly of like what we're supposed to be calling it. Um, you know, we, we liked NFTs before. Now NFTs is a dirty word. And now we're doing, now we're saying digital assets. Um, you know, if it's in the metaverse, some people, you know, we're just making up words, digitals or meta metaverse itself, right? That came out and meta re and Facebook renamed itself meta. And that was just a huge question mark across the board of like, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> and, in explaining that. So um, I think it's interesting and I think it's interesting how fast Web3 moves because the language signals that and all of a sudden something's toxic and we have to pivot and be like, okay, well, now you think NFTs just means board eight, so we have to start calling them something else so that right. you understand that it's not just that. It's not like NFTs don't equal PFPs, right? Um, and so I think that's a huge change, right? Like from the bull to the bear, that language shift has been major because so many, uh, and it was needed, right? Like branding of technology matters. Um, you know, calling it web one, web two, and web three. Uh, the amount of times I've had to explain that, I've just sometimes stopped using web three with people because they're like, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. But if I say blockchain, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I kind of know. It's a ledger, right? If you like that, sure. <laughs> yeah. It really just depends. But that's been my experience anyway, and in how the language has evolved, but it's evolved for a market reason um, because the branding matters and it matters depending on the audience you're talking to uh, because there's such a, there's so much education that goes into it. So again, like I try not to use NFTs anymore unless I'm talking to someone who owns and understands smart contracts. Um, and I try to just say digital assets because that makes it more tangible and and, and it helps conceptualize. And that's the only way, you know, creating this common language, like that is how you get more people on board. Mm-hmm. Speaking your own language and creating your own jargon can be a discriminatory and exclus- exclusionary action. Um, and what I've tried to do as I worked across sectors and worked across education levels is really simplify it down. Um, because if, yeah, there is some benefit if you're talking in code and the person across from you doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, you're going to have a much more trusted, better, deeper relationship if you are using shared language and not forcing an entire mainstream population into learning a new vocabulary set just to play. Yeah. Um, that's not how you mainstreamify. So I've actually been like, I'm happy about how it evolve because we're getting away from these really hyper technical terms and getting into terms that people understand even if they don't understand the underlying technology people use the cloud and have no idea what the cloud is people use the internet don't have any idea what the internet is that's okay and blockchain in my opinion is gonna 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 kind of go the same way so you know nfts okay digital assets someone who has no idea how blockchain works is going to be able to conceptualize digital assets much easier well, it's interesting, even from like the TradFi world, people using words like liquidity is, is, is relatively basic one. But thinking of like all the different words, I was reading a story in history about like they did it explicitly to like keep people out of it that didn't understand that finance world. Right. And that's kind of the, the thesis for this podcast is to really create that bridge and simplify and, and have people start to understand these real world 
use cases for blockchain where it's not just going to be a rug pull with some guy with the emoji in his Twitter handle or something like that. You know, it, it's much deeper than that. And this is technology that people are probably using today, like you said, and, and don't even realize it. Right. I guess in the last question is like, how, how can our listeners uh, get involved there? I don't know if you guys still are taking donations via crypto or other ways that folks that like were fascinated by you, like I was today, could get involved and help propel blockchain and, and the future of digital assets in the right positive direction versus the uh, unfortunate history we've had with rug pulls. How do we paint this in a better picture today? Yeah, um, that's a great question that I think we all grapple with as we navigate this very tumultuous market. We don't only use blockchain technology, we also play in cryptocurrency. And I think it was really important for us to um, dive into different ways that this technology can be leveraged to demonstrate how it can be positively socially impactful in real communities and for direct services. So for example, we didn't talk about either of these yet, but I'd love to bring them up. One, um, we started the first of its kind crypto endowment fund for better childhoods. So as a nonprofit, we actually hold our crypto and what we do is, what well, we're planning to do is reach a certain threshold and then draw down from that endowment fund to reinvest in innovation. So there's not a lot of money floating around in the nonprofit space, um, particularly in child welfare, but kind of across the board in the nonprofit space that allows us to fail. And to innovate and to come up with breakthrough solutions, you have to fail fast and you have to fail often. And that means you have to have resources to do so creating our own crypto endowment fund insulated that our our regular endowment fund that every nonprofit has, right? We've, we're over 140 years old. We have our own endowment fund, but that helps general operations, direct services, you know, the things that need to happen now to keep the machine going and to care for the kids in our community that need care right now. The crypto endowment fund is seeding breakthrough solutions, upstream solutions that can have major scale. So if there are listeners who are really passionate about what we're doing, I would say invest in the crypto endowment fund because it's not only going to be able to fund services and innovations in the short term, but it gives us runway so that we can dream bigger, we can take bigger swings um, and be able to really uh, more rapidly get these innovations to market. So that's one way. Another way is we actually run a server on GoChain and we're a validator node. So we are built into protocols to validate. And then the crypto that we make from validating goes into our crypto endowment fund. Two huge goals for the innovation lab. One, obviously break the cycle of child abuse through new programs, all of that, and new products. So child welfare data management system or application fits into that. But another one is really creating a sustainable model for innovation within the sector. And right now, and this is true across most nonprofits, um, the average age of a donor is like 60 years old, between 60 and 70 years old. Younger people are not donating at the same rate or donating the same way. Crypto is another pathway. Um, to donate and to capture a different donor class. 
the average crypto donor gives a minimum. I think the Giving Block came out with a number. It's like six grand or 10 grand or something like that, which is like the average cash donation is like $200. As I said, that's even higher than I, than I would have expected. Yeah. That, and and they're on average statistically younger, between like 35 and 45 years old. Hmm. So this is just another way to engage and support your community with the resources that you have and um, in, in a different way, right? So we're trying to be, be built into more protocols so that we're doing less of this going out, doing fundraising campaigns, one-off splash, splash in the pan, I like to call it campaigns. Like we're about to go into giving season. I'm going to tell you right now, your inbox is going to be full of email appeals of before the end of the year, before the end of the year, help your, <laughs> yeah. your donations. Uh, um, but what if we just were running like four or five validator nodes and we didn't have to spend our time doing that because it just kind of const- we were built in as part of the infrastructure Love and it. then you'd go do events and yeah. partnerships and more products and hire more people. Um, so for listeners who want to get involved, uh, we're looking for protocol partnerships. We're fundraising for Care Block 2, this blockchain application. We're looking for partners and funders. Um, and giving season is coming up. So this is just kind of like a new way to give. If you feel compelled, um, I'm here. Reach out. Kelsey.driscoll at upbring.org. We're also on Twitter and LinkedIn and all the things. I'm sure you'll include links. Um, but we are always open for partnership discussions for anyone who wants to support. And then on top of that, if, if there isn't a financial way that you can get involved, we always look for volunteers as well. And we always want to build our, build into communities. So, um, again, my, my inbox is open and love connecting. And we really want, again, to be of the culture, not just a passive beneficiary. So. Yeah, I think I've answered your question. Kelsey, this has been beyond phenomenal. Like, honestly, I think this is, I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but I think one of my favorite <laughs> podcast episodes I've ever done, just because it's, you're so knowledgeable in so many different areas. And I wish that we could just copy paste you across the, <laughs> across the globe here, because it, the world needs more people like you that truly care, right? Number one, it's very hard to find someone that really cares about something so deeply, as well as someone that understands the technology. So uh, you're, you're a true gem. Thank you so much for coming on the Block Field Podcast. We'll definitely stay in touch. We'll definitely share with our clients and people we speak with. But this has been a true pleasure. So thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. Thank you for yeah, having us guessing. and elevating our story. We really appreciate it. Um, yeah. So thank you so much.